evening. An epic storm drenches New York and the Northeast. Dozens are dead. How the CIA got out of Afghanistan and the suicide crisis at Rikers Island. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, September 2nd, 2021. President Joe Biden blasted the Supreme Court's decision not to block a new Texas law banning most abortions in the state. Biden also directed federal agencies to do what they can to insulate women and providers from the impact. In the middle of last night, a deeply divided high court voted five to four to deny an emergency appeal from abortion providers. The Texas law is the biggest curb to abortion rights since Roe versus Wade decision. Women have a said said or rule that women have a constitutional right to an abortion. Biden says his administration will launch a whole-of-government effort to respond to this decision and look at what steps the federal government can take to ensure that women in Texas have access to safe and legal abortions as protected by Roe. Meanwhile, as abortions have been blocked in Texas, women seeking the procedure have been streaming into surrounding states. A clinic in Kansas reported a 40% increase in patients, and clinics as far away as Colorado were putting in extra supplies. Closer to home, a stunned United States East Coast face a rising death toll, surging rivers, tornado damage, and continuing calls for rescue today. Remnants of Hurricane Ida deluged the region with record-breaking rain, drowning more than two dozen people in their homes and cars. The most recent count has 40 confirmed deaths. At least 12 people died in New York City. Linda Perry has more. Last night, New York experienced record flooding on our streets and in our subways, triggering historic flash flood emergencies. The remnants from Hurricane Ida interacted with a frontal system and unleashed record amounts of rain quickly, very, very quickly. Vinny Sapienza is commissioner of New York City's Department of Environmental Protection. Rainfall rates were really extraordinary and far exceeded the capacity of the system. Anything over two inches an hour, we're going to have trouble with. Sapienza says the storm a few weeks ago with the remnants of Henri was about the same total amount of rainfall. But the storm last night fell within a really short window, a few hours. He said that was the big difference. Police in New York City reported at least nine deaths as basement apartments suddenly filled with water and freeways and boulevards turned into rivers. Sapienza stood with New York officials in Jamaica, Queens. There, three people died during flooding in their home. Representative Gregory Meeks from southeastern Queens delivered his condolences to residents. This is absolutely devastating. And my heart reaches out to each and every one on this block and in this family. A mother, a son, gone from us because of climate change and these record storms. Storms that were once in 500 years, I'm told. Now that we've got to look at them to be storms that come in a regular manner. Queensboro President Donovan Richard says if we don't address climate change, we will continue to lose lives in Queens and across the country. He says we don't have to look any further than Louisiana to see what also happened there. And he has a message for homeowners. Uh, please document all of your loss, losses. I've spoken to some homeowners here. Put a claim in with the comptroller as well as with your insurance companies as well. I know that a lot of residents struggle with flood insurance, but these are some key things to do. I'm also asking companies uh, to allow their workers uh, to work remote on today. 
uh, and if you're not an essential worker, to really stay off of the roads as well. Um, for the neighborhoods of Whitestone, College Point, uh, and uh, parts of Flushing, uh, Left Rack, uh, I want you to know that we are here. I've asked the governor on today for uh, assistance uh, to our small businesses and to our homeowners as well. Uh, and she's uh, given her stamp of approval on all of those things. Uh, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Uh, we are not out of the woods. Queens needs to see much more infrastructure investment. We cannot wait until tomorrow. We need it today. These lives could have been saved if we had investment that we sorely needed a long time ago. New York Governor Kathy Hochul agrees. And that means we have to continue investments in infrastructure, working in partnership with our federal government and support from Senator Schumer and President Biden who are working so hard, so hard to get the infrastructure dollars back to our state so we can build this up, working in partnership with the mayor and other officials to work collaboratively and get this done so we can take care of the drainage shortcomings in our streets because when the streets get flooded, what happens next? The water rushes down, not just through the highways, but also finds its way to penetrate our subway system. And as a result, what happened yesterday? Trains were shut down, people were stranded. The fear that they must have experienced when this occurred, I cannot imagine. And I don't want this to happen again. The governor says state police and rescue teams had to rescue more than 100 people in Rockland County and Westchester alone. And she gives a shout out to all the workers involved last night. Our transit workers are heroes, especially all the bus operators who had to be deployed to literally take people from stations to where they needed to go. So it was an extraordinary rescue operation just a few short hours ago. President Biden called, offered any assistance. He repeated any assistance that the state of New York needs. I told him we'll take him up on that. And what happens next, we'll be doing on-the-ground assessments of the damage with the FEMA teams, our local partners, and making sure we get a true accounting of the loss. But he promised that he'll guarantee, he said, I guarantee you, I will approve any declaration you need, emergency declaration, so we can get the money flowing to New York to our municipalities, to our cities, to our citizens, the businesses affected, and certainly to the homeowners. And also with respect to the homeowners who've experienced the flooding in their own basements, I've directed the Department of Financial Services to be in contact immediately with our insurance providers so they get people on the ground. Show up in these neighborhoods, get your claims adjusters, let them start filing to get reimbursed for the damages. We have mobile units on the ground to this end as well. The New York governor said before we worried about the coastal areas. Now it's what's happening in the streets, the drainage systems and resiliency that needs to be enhanced. Because of climate change, we have to be prepared to deal with this kind of storm regularity. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Linda. The ferocious storm also spawned tornadoes at at least seven, according to the National Weather Service. One split trees on Cape Cod, another tore off part of a high school roof in suburban Philadelphia, and yet another ripped apart homes and toppled silos in New Jersey. Meanwhile, President Biden pledged robust federal help for the states battered by Hurricane Ida and for western states beset by wildfires, adding the catastrophes are serving as deadly reminders that the climate crisis has arrived. The president also scolded insurers who are declining to pay for the cost of damage or hotel stays for people who had to evacuate their homes. Insurance companies, in the face of the strongest storm since 1850, say, no, no, 
we're not going to pay you what we owe you. Because the fact is, parishes in Louisiana, like New Orleans and St. John's, issued a voluntary evacuation order at first. No one fled this killer storm because they were looking for a vacation. They left their homes because they felt it was flee or risk death. So I'm calling on the private insurance companies right now. Don't hide behind the fine print and technicality. Do your job. Do the right thing and pay your policyholders what you owe them. President Biden, he's visiting the Gulf region at the end of a difficult stretch for the president. He oversaw the chaotic exit of the United States military from Afghanistan after a 20-year engagement that included helping evacuate more than 120,000 fleeing Taliban rule. As Ida bore down on the Gulf Coast on Sunday, Biden was at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware to witness the return of the remains of the 13 U.S. servicemen and women who were killed in suicide bombing last week at Afghanistan's airport in Kabul, where the evacuations were taking place place. Republicans aren't cutting Biden any slack, although it was former President Donald Trump who made a separate peace with the Taliban, freezing out the Afghan government and apparently ensuring the demise of the Ghani administration. An ad showcased on the conservative news site Newsmax attempts to portray Biden as weak. Afghanistan cannot be used as a terrorist base. But Afghanistan has become a Disneyland for terrorists. We plan for every contingency. Total chaos. It is heartbreaking. It is depressing. It's a failure. And he needs to own that failure. Very responsibility for all that's happened. He did not admit any mistakes. He did not uh, offer any change, of course. He says we're going to continue forward. He really isn't taking responsibility. Mr. Biden, you did this. You made the deal with the Taliban. But retired U.S. Army Major Danny Surgeon says Biden's pullout from Afghanistan probably improves the security of the United States, despite the optics that remind many of the American defeat in Vietnam. I don't think that the loss in Afghanistan in and of itself is actually any major threat to American security at all. It's a threat to Afghans and it's a tragedy and a waste. But I don't think that it's half of what the alarmists make it out to be. You're feeling in general about Biden's choice, his decision to pull out the way he did. I completely support Biden getting out and getting out soon. It's forgotten that he did extend a few months from the May deadline that was originally in place. Were there major problems with the logistics of it? Sure. One could argue about whether Bagram Air Base should have been kept open, but that's like 30 to 40 miles north of Kabul, the embassy. So there's arguments about that. Could there have been a better process in place to get the interpreters and people who worked with us out? Absolutely. But that bureaucratic system was long in the making. The speed, the scope, the scale with which the Taliban took the country, exposing the delusion and sort of the castle of sand of the entire endeavor is even more evidence that it was time to go. Fareed Zakaria said there's no elegant way to end a war. Messy wars end messily. This one shouldn't have been fought or at least definitely shouldn't have been continued. And kudos to Biden. He's getting flack from both sides of the establishment. That usually tells me someone's making the right decision because those same people were the architects of this disaster. 
And they've been wrong about every single foreign policy decision since 9-11. So if he's getting, you know, flack from both Max Boot and the liberal interventionist, then good. He's probably onto something. What about 9-11? How should we look back on it? What was it? It was two things. It was an anomaly. Nothing like that has been pulled off since. Nothing like that was ever pulled off before. This is really uncomfortable for people, for New Yorkers, but I am one. Family and friends, firefighters killed. I don't take that lightly. However, two things that the United States was unwilling to recognize in the aftermath of 9-11. One, we didn't deserve it. No civilians deserve to be killed that way. But 9-11 was a result of American policies. It was a blowback of American policies in the, in the greater Middle East. And if you said that at the time, you were canceled. You were shut down. You hated America. You literally lost your job. And the second thing is it's a really, really bad idea to make long-term strategic decisions out of revenge and out of fear. And to do it so quickly, for example, basically declaring war on September 14th with the AUMF while the World Trade Center is still smoldering. Calling it a war was the original sin and not realizing it was an anomaly and not realizing it was blowback from the very same strategies that we actually pursued even worse. And I hope that we're able to look back at this as a massive cautionary tale. That's uncomfortable for folks. I'm not that optimistic it will happen, but it is the only way to avoid something like this in the future. Christianity tradition versus Islam. It was put in those terms so much. And the U.S. is going in there and we were financing and building that up. To what extent is the United States sort of creating its own enemy? You know, that's one of the things that's most remarkable about this is that, you know, the United States creates the enemies that the war industry needs. Our policies have turned societies that in certain cases have been, you know, especially in West Africa, even in, in Afghanistan to a certain extent, were never as extremist, as Islamist, jihadi are now. U.S. military policy, U.S. interventionism, meddling in the greater Islamic world, West Africa to Central Asia, has been utterly counterproductive every single turn. And every time that's been demonstrably proven in terms of statistics, number of attacks, number of terrorists that grow, the only answer that the establishment has had is, well, let's just try more of the same. And of course, apocryphally, Einstein said that's insanity. But this clash of civilizations narrative, we fed into it when Bush initially called this a crusade, and then he kind of backed off of that. Trump's rhetoric certainly didn't help us any, because he said the things that the bigots in the United States were hoping that some Republican president would say. My prescription for U.S. policy in the greater Middle East would be the do less strategy. Do less. I can almost guarantee that doing less would mean less extremism in the world. What's the next area that we should worry about? pulling out of Iraq and Syria, where our troops only risk causing a major regional war. They sit on bases as rocket magnets. If an Iranian-backed militia kills an American soldier and Biden feels the need to respond, he could risk a major regional war. The next step is to get rid of both of the AUMFs, the post-9-11 one that's been used everywhere and the Iraq one that's been used to justify Syria, Iraq, and assassinating Iranian leaders. We need to start fresh and only fight when Congress, constitutionally mandated responsibility, declares war as representatives of the people. And that's retired U.S. Army Major Danny Surgeon, who fought in Afghanistan and Iraq. 
The AUMF, or Authorization for Use of Military Force, is a joint resolution of the United States Congress, which became law on September 18, 2001, authorizing the use of the United States Armed Forces against those responsible for the September 11th attacks. And today, the Taliban showed off its newly captured U.S. hardware in a parade through the streets of Kabul. It comes after the final Allied aircraft lifted off from Karzai Airport. A line of armored United States military vehicles piloted by young Taliban fighters was the latest show. The Taliban are in a firm grip of the war-torn nation. According to the New York Times, relying on commercial satellite images, a CIA facility outside of Kabul named Eagle Base saw a lot of unusual activity last week. The base was used to train Afghan army commandos and included a secret prison known as the Salt Pit, where detainees were reportedly tortured. The Times report included security camera footage of a fleeing helicopter the newspaper linked to the CIA. And in more news, White House Chief Medical Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci said today he would not be surprised if the recommended full regimen for the Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines in the U.S. becomes three doses instead of two. Fauci says giving people an additional dose or perhaps a final dose several months after they've received their initial vaccination helps the immune system mature. More than 150,000 people in the first three weeks of August They compared the two-dose with the three-dose, and they found after 7 to 13 days up to 68% reduction in the risk of infection, and after 14 to 20 days, a 70 to 84% reduction in the risk of infection. There's no doubt from the dramatic data from the Israeli study that the boosts that are being now done there and contemplated here support very strongly the rationale for such an approach based on the very favorable data associated with boost. Dr. Fauci, he's the director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In state news, Catherine Garcia, the former sanitation commissioner in New York City and runner-up in the Democratic mayoral primary this June, is joining Governor Kathy Hochul's new administration. Garcia will become the director of state operations, a key management job in the governor's office with broad portfolio, overseeing everything from disaster and storm response to the day-to-day management of the state. And in the city, Department of Education Chancellor Maisha Porter announced yesterday that public school buildings with students ages 12 and older will offer the COVID-19 vaccine to members of the school community during the first week of classes. Approximately 700 schools will operate as vaccination sites beginning September 13th to provide COVID-19 shots to students, family members and school staff. The sites will not be open to the general public. Schools will only be offering Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine since that is the one approved for children 12 and older. Parental consent will be required for minors. The vaccination units will return to schools during the week of October 4th to administer second doses. And a new ad by the city features a number of city rabbis that are advocating for folks to get out there and get their shots. We haven't lived through enough. We shall live in the office in fancy yard, but shingadog. For we in the community have to realize that if 99% of doctors say take the shot, we take the shot. What's the shile over here? Are we playing games? The terrorist says, When it pertains to matters of health, you have to follow the doctors. So let's all feel comfortable yet again. 
davening in shul, going back to yeshivas, please take achrayis for your neighbor's health as well as your own. Nafshei is in the plural. When we take the vaccine, we're helping everybody. And that's a double mitzvah. And that's a new ad advocating for people to get their shots here in New York City. But in other news that is decidedly more serious, a detainee on Rikers Island died by suicide early Monday, as reported here on WBAI, prompting outrage from advocates who decried an explosion of death in city jails. Segunda Gayapa, 57, died at about 1.30 a.m. in the North Infirmary Command, a jail with facilities dedicated to incarcerated people with medical issues. A corrections officer discovered Gayapa unresponsive in his cell and contacted medical staff. Family members say there was just no words to match the scale of the horror and more was added. It's the ninth case of a suicide this year at Rikers Island, prompting a protest yesterday by folks who say it's time to close Rikers and let my people go. Mike check. Mike check. We honor the memory. Wilson Diaz Guzman. Let our people go. We honor the memory. We of Tomas Carlo. Let our people go. We honor the memory. We honor the memory of Javier Velasco. And that was a protest yesterday. Several uh, years ago, Khalif Browder, we you might know that if you've been following the story here in New York, was found allegedly a victim of a suicide in his jail cell at Rikers Island. It was a case that attracted national and international attention because Khalif Browder uh, was a young man who had spent a long time in jail over charges related to a stolen backpack, and it was never really asserted that any backpack had been stolen or that any crime had been committed. However, uh, Khalif repeatedly, over a period of months, many months in Rikers, was put into solitary confinement and in conditions that many would call torturous, especially to a troubled young man. It turned out that Khalif Browder just couldn't afford bail, and his case was one of the main cries, battle cries, that led the state legislature finally under pressure to eliminate bail for nonviolent offenses in New York City. Khalif Browder's brother, Akeem Browder, is painfully aware of the suicides this year at Rikers Island. He spoke with WBAI yesterday. It's a tragic situation incredibly hurtful to the family. For another death at Rikers, suicide or not, it really speaks towards the conditions. It speaks towards the grief that people are actually going through on Rikers and the fact that they're silent. No one no one hears these stories. It, it takes people like my friends at Legal Aid Society, the people at Jack, Jail Jackson Coalition, to actually bring stories like this to light. It's tragic, really. Bring it to light. There's a problem finding out about what happened. Yeah, exactly. Most of the times when we hear of these stories, it's not because New York Post or someone in mainstream media is actually posting about it. Rikers, it's out of sight, out of mind. And if not for actions that we do, like on the street as a grassroots movement, we don't get to hear these stories. Why do you think that is? They keep it silent. The, the Department of Corrections doesn't let anything out. There's only one way in, one way out. They control who comes in and comes out, controls how things are stated or are put to the public. It's a shame that um, this 25-year-old young man, he was found in the morning hours 
late night, basically early morning. We don't know what the story really, really happened or what it really was. There's no investigations or anything. It really does underscore the poor conditions at Rikers, especially on someone's mental health. If it was a suicide at that. Jail is supposed to be, well, jail, a secure place. How could people get a circumstance in jail where they can do this? That brings up another problem. See, Rikers, me and a lot of uh, my colleagues understood that when we were there, like I was on Rikers before, Khalid was on Rikers, um, all the things that they say happened does not actually happen. They say it, and then we find out five years later, two years later, that it actually wasn't. Like with Khalid's story, they said that he tried to escape and that they had to use necessary force. But then we found the video five years later. 2010, they said it. By 2015, we've seen it. They get over on the public all the time. It's the time for the public to start stepping up and saying they are not reliable. They are not stewards of their positions. Something has to happen. What do you think of Mayor de Blasio? I mean, he says he wants to close down Rikers. He says he's getting opposition. He should be closing it down. What do you think of his approach to this whole thing? In 2021, there's been nine people dead in New York City jails alone. Just the mayor promised change, and yet he does nothing to amount to the families that are suffering the pain from their loved ones tormented in these jails. The district attorney has a moral obligation in this, the judges, the mayor, people should be immediately released. But yet, if they're not even having due process of law, they should be being released. But they blamed it on COVID as though they couldn't do anything. They made the public believe that they were doing virtual court. They weren't doing anything. People are being denied food and health care and other basic needs. This is an underscore of justice right in front of our face, but I'm glad that you guys are covering the story. We need the mainstream media to also cover it too, but their job right now is to make people seem like we're such criminals that we need more police presence. What should the public do about this? Well, the public really should be outraged. I'm not speaking for everyone, but I've been in New York all my life. And it's time that de Blasio should step aside or do something other than talk. The people should start listening to the names of these people that are dead and for what they were in jail for, these minor crimes, and yet dying while inside there, not just due to COVID, but because of the lack of humane conditions. The people need to start holding the mayor accountable, the district attorney, the judges, and those officers that were on the units of these nine dead people. And that is Akeem Browder, Khalif Browder's brother. And finally, a staff shortage at Rikers Island left two jail units without correction officers for more than 24 hours on Tuesday and Wednesday, a prisoner reported. And a city oversight board said the ongoing personnel problems factored into a wave of suicides in the jails since last year. Two Rikers units, known as 3 West and 3 North in the Otis Bantam Correctional Center, were without correction officers through at least noon yesterday, leaving inmates in the strange position of helping other inmates get to court transport and video conferences. That's according to Terrence Ferguson, the hip-hop artist known as Two Millie. He said, we are really running the dorm by ourselves. I've never seen anything like this, said Ferguson, who is serving a sentence for gun possession. Department of Correction officials declined comment on whether parts of Rikers have gone unguarded for longer than 24 hours, but the department has acknowledged a personnel shortage, which it has blamed on a large number of sick or unavailable staff. 
And that's some of the news for Thursday, September 2nd, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry, our engineers, Richie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tonight at midnight. <laughs>